All right, Nick. So we're done with our boards and uh, Kriogs are over for this year. But, you know, what do we do if we want to keep making sure that we're up to date on the most current OBGYN practices? Yeah, as we get this podcast together every week, we have to always think about our friends over at the OBG Project who have these amazing summaries that are updated every day of the week, encompassing the latest research, encompassing newest practices, um, and also posting things like Grand Rounds where they get into the controversies of modern obstetric and gynecologic practice. And for all you residents out there, they also have a great core curriculum for you to study from. Um, we know that you probably want to break after Creongs, but definitely something to, worth checking out. And for all you chief residents out there, you can get one year subscription to OBG First absolutely free. Head over to our website, creogsovercoffee.com. Check out the sidebar. Chiefs, find out how you can get OBG First absolutely free. And residents, get signed up for the core curriculum. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creogs over, over Coffee. Coffee. So today we have back with us our dear friend, co-resident, and current fellow in reproductive endocrinology and infertility at the University of Pennsylvania, Dr. Andre Delinko. Welcome back, Andre. Thank you. Good to be back. All right, Andre, so I hear that we're going to be doing part two of our hysteroscopy uh, episode. So what are our learning objectives for today? Yeah, so uh, for learning objectives for today, we're going to be looking at really why do we do hysteroscopy? This is just going to be a brief overview and then going through all the complications uh, that we could possibly have and sometimes a little bit of how to deal with them. Perfect. So I guess kind of, you know, where we left off last time was talking a lot about the nuts and bolts of hysteroscopy, right? We talked about, you know, what fluid you should choose, what exactly a fluid deficit is, the different types of hysteroscopes and instruments that we have. But kind of one important thing that we didn't spend a lot of time talking about last time was why exactly we do hysteroscopy. So do you mind breaking that down for us into kind of the different things we can treat or the different types of hysteroscopy from a procedural perspective? So ultimately, uh, hysteroscopy really has two main goals. One is diagnostic and two is operative. So from a diagnostic perspective, this is really the gold standard for looking at any intracavitary defects, whether those be polyps or fibroids, any scar tissue that you can see there that you might have suggestions of on a sonohistogram or an HSG. But as of today, the gold standard is nothing better than a camera. So from a diagnostic perspective, you can look at what are some causes of AUB. So we've mentioned polyps and fibroids. Uh, we also use this very often for infertility purposes, particularly in my field, uh, and then looking for structural anomalies that I've mentioned. Once we diagnose it, you can move on to the operative hysteroscopy component. Uh, so uh, you can, as we talked about in the first episode, uh, take out IUDs with this. You can take polyps. You can do fibroids. You can resect a septum. Intrauterine adhesions and Asherman's disease. Uh, I know that uh, Faye and Nick have extensively covered endometrial ablations before, so take a look at the cavity before you ablate it. And then some more complicated things like C-section scar or isthmus seal excisions, and then C-section scar, cervical ectopic excisions, as well as tubal cannulation. So I know we said one of the things that we wanted to talk about today were some of the complications of hysteroscopy, Andre. You know, I feel like the biggest thing that was like ingrained into us as interns when we first started to do hysteroscopy was like, don't perf the uterus. 
So talk to us today about perforation. Yeah, absolutely. We'd be happy to do that. So all of the complications, and this will be primarily following from ACOG's committee opinion number 800, which was just updated in February of 2020, but not much has changed from that perspective. So perforation, yeah, we don't want to perforate. If you're perforating with a blunt instrument, you don't particularly care. You don't really want to continue the procedure, but the biggest problems are come in when you're perforating with some of the operative components of your hysteroscopy. Out of all the complications of hysteroscopy, it is the most common. It ranges from 0.1 to 1.6%. So in the grand scheme of things, still very rare, um, but from hysteroscopy, relatively common. Some risk factors for it are the blind insertion of instruments. So when you're dilating up the cervix, um, and to allow your hysteroscope to pass, you can always perforate with those uh, dilators. Cervical stenosis, so particularly in those postmenopausal patients, or anatomic distortion, uh, so fibroids, adhesions, myometrial thinning from prior surgeries, uh, or uteri that are antiverted or even antiflexed or retroverted or antiflexed. So that's one of the biggest reasons why you have to do a good pelvic exam and examine anesthesia before you start your hysteroscopy. The most important thing is you have to have a high index of suspicion that it's happened. So even if you perforate either with the dilator or with the camera, hopefully when you put in the camera, you'll be able to see that you're perfed. Um, but knowing that it happened. And then you can decrease the risk by using ultrasound or laparoscopic guidance on some of those more complex procedures when you have an obliterated cavity from really bad ashermans, for example. As I mentioned before, if you perforate with the dilator, no big deal. You probably aren't going to injure anything on the other side. Uh, but if you're going to be perf, uh, perf with your electrosurgical instrument or your uh, tissue extraction device like a myosher, for example, you really want to evaluate that. And that's going to be coming down to laparoscopy and laparotomy at the time of your surgery. All right. The next complication I want to talk about, we did touch on very briefly in our last episode, um, which focuses on fluid overload and its consequences. Um, do you mind, Andre, kind of like going through, I know we talked about electrolyte-free media, electrolyte-rich media, um, the fluid deficit, and just sort of reviewing some of those things and then talking with us about how exactly to manage or be suspicious of fluid overload. Yeah, so as we reviewed last time, depending on the fluid that you use, you're going to have a different deficit limit that you want to uh, limit yourself to. If it's the going to be electrolyte-free media, you're going to be limiting yourself to just about a liter uh, or two and a half liters if you're using electrolyte-rich media, which is the majority of what you use these days with normal saline. The biggest risk factors for this are when you're resecting large or deep lesions, so very big fibroids, for example, or if you're using a high-pressure setting to try to decrease your um, blood loss from being really able to visualize what you're doing. Knowing what sort of procedure that you're doing um, and what sort of fluid you're using is going to be your first and foremost thing in terms of uh, making sure that you don't uh, cause fluid overload and then using fluid management systems to know where you're at. Some other preventive measures that you can do are using uh, GnRH agonists uh, preoperatively to try to decrease the size of fibroids, for example. Uh, you can use intracervical vasopressin injection to decrease the blood flow to the uterus, uh, which will obviously decrease the amount of fluid that gets absorbed through the vessels. And then planning for stage procedures for some of those bigger fibroids. So uh, knowing that I'm only going to be able to resect 50% of it this time and then going back again later. If you do recognize that uh, you're 
getting to your limit, uh, your fluid deficit, or you're seeing consequences of fluid overload in the patient from anesthesia's perspective, for example, the first and foremost, the first thing that you have to do is just stop the procedure. You have to assess uh, the patient's hemodynamic stability, their neurologic uh, perspective. How are they doing from a respiratory and cardiovascular status? And you can easily check their labs, so sense your electrolytes, osmolality. If you're planning for a big procedure ahead of time, uh, or this is a patient who uh, has some complications leading into the surgery already, um, having serum electrolytes on file uh, before you start pr- the procedure can be very helpful. And then your first step, uh, once you recognize fluid overload, is going to be using a loop diuretic, so something like Lasix or furosemide, uh, to rapidly uh, decrease that fluid. And then if things get uh, worse, then using hypertonic saline. And at that point, you're going to be consulting your internal medicine or critical care colleagues. So let's kind of move on to other complications, Andre. What about bleeding complications? And so bleeding complications are relatively rare. Um, the most common reasons for them are going to be cervical lacerations, uh, if you perforate the uterus, particularly with a larger instrument, uh, or if you're resecting some uh, large cavitary lesions. So fibroids always have a blood supply, big polyps of blood supplies. And we talked about the possibility of using this for cervical ectopics, for example, which as all ectopics have a lot of blood supply. Hemorrhage is very rare. Uh, only happens less than about half a percent uh, of cases. And then management of it will depend on where the bleeding is coming from and how severe is it. Uh, If you notice it during a cervical laceration, for example, uh, then you might need to put in a suture. If it's bleeding inside the uterus and you have a resectoscope available, then uh, using some electrocautery to just uh, cauterize a bleeding vessel. As you're going through the procedure, you can also use intrauterine Foley balloons, so similar to a Bakri balloon, but uh, because it's not a gravid uterus, you're going to just use a Foley balloon, or if it's a larger cavity, you can use several of these. And then in more extreme cases, obviously, UAE and hysterectomy are always on the table, but we hope to never get there with hysteroscopy. And then you can also prevent uh, hemorrhage, I think I mentioned it a little bit, with uh, kind of decreasing your fluid overload. The same thing, you can use um, you know, a dilute vasopressin injection to just constrict those vessels and decrease the amount of blood flow that's going to your uterus at the time of your procedure. Uh, You mentioned cervical lacerations really quickly there. And I know that's a common thing between us is like someone who does obstetrics and knows that those can really bleed. Um, You know, management, of course, is with suturing, but what can you try to do to prevent that? So the most common reason that this happens is because your tenaculum pulls off. Uh, So making sure that you have a good bite with the tenaculum, particularly when you're going to be doing a hysteroscopy with a resectoscope, which has a much larger diameter uh, scope. So you're going to be dilating quite a bit and you're going to be manipulating a lot. So you want to make sure that the bite on the cervix is nice and good. Let's talk about some more rare uh, complications, Andre. So what about some of those like other things like an air embolism, for example? So once again, as you said, very, very rare. Uh, I personally have never seen one. I hope to never seen one. They uh, happen less than 0.1% of the time. So less than one in a thousand cases will uh, have a complication such as this. Um, and the biggest thing that you have to do for this is make sure that uh, all the air is purged from the tubing, you know, particularly if you're just using a hanging bag of saline. All nurses know how to do this when they're spiking the bag, but uh, that all the air is purged from the tubing. And the um, the way that uh, the fluid management systems are set up this way, they already do that for you as well. 
And then you have to be careful about reintroducing instruments through the cervix multiple times. Once again, this is going to be more common kind of with a resectoscope when you don't have a tissue extraction device that's automatically pulling some pieces of that fibroid in through the device. And you have to go in and out to get rid of the pieces of fibroids that are floating around the cavity. Uh, but limiting that as much as possible will try to decrease the possibility of an air bubble getting into your circulation. Uh, if it does happen, some things that can happen if the patient's awake, uh, they might complain of chest pain or shortness of breath. If there are any anesthesia, your colleagues will notice a decreased on tidal CO2, hypotension, and tachycardia. And then on exam, the classic sound is a millwheel murmur. And I tried to look up the sound for the uh, purposes of this podcast, but couldn't actually find a, an example online. <laughs> feel like we kind of encounter mill wheels probably less frequently nowadays. <laughs> right. Um, if it does happen, obviously terminate the procedure, deflate the cavity as soon as possible. Uh, and then you can place the patient in the left lateral decubitus and Trendelenburg position to try to move that air bubble away from the right uh, ventricular outflow tract and let it absorb over time, hoping to never see that one. Yeah, no kidding. Um, what about kind of infections? I know we're instrumenting the uterus. Is that something that that's that common or do you use antibiotics at all? You don't use antibiotics. It is pretty rare, once again, uh, less than one and a half percent of the time. And the infections would most commonly be uh, an intrauterine infection, um, endometritis, or you can also get UTIs just because you're operating in that area. Uh, but uh, antibiotic prophylaxis is not routinely warranted for this. Now, um, I just wanted to ask about one more thing, Andre, which is not necessarily dangerous, but you know we do see sometimes, which is like a vasovagal reaction, right? And we see this even in the office when you're manipulating the cervix. Mm -hmm. So you're, as you mentioned, you're more likely going to see this in your office procedures than for patients who are already under anesthesia. Uh, so just recognizing it, you can warn patients that it, it might happen. As uh, you mentioned, kind of during cervical dilation is most commonly when it will happen. And you stop the procedure, you assess their ABCs, you can raise their legs and uh, put them in Trendelenburg if they're in the office. Uh, and then in uh, really severe cases, you can consider atropine if needed for bradycardia. But this is really usually self-limiting if you recognize it. Right. I kind of want to move now from these scary complications that we've talked about to trying to troubleshoot through hysteroscopy, um, especially for our new learners out there who may be holding a hysteroscope for the first time or for junior faculty who maybe did a lot of hysteroscopy as junior residents, but then now are out there and finding that they're doing this as part of the bread and butter of their practice. I think one of the primary things people run into is cervical stenosis, right? Like they're, they can't get the hysteroscope in and they're worried about that risk of perforation. So what are some strategies that you've found successful, Andre, to help overcome a stenotic cervix? One of the things that you can do is if you're anticipating it to be a potentially difficult hysteroscopy, uh, let's say you had trouble getting in for an endometrial biopsy on a postmenopausal patient, uh, you can uh, give them some mesoprostol ahead of time. Uh, you can do this uh, vaginally, so 200 to 400 micrograms, 12 to 24 hours pre-procedure. So have them do it the night before they come in for the procedure just to help soften up that cervix and help a little bit of that dilation, same as we use it in pretty much a GYN or any OB cases down the road. Uh, you can also use vasopressin. Once again, we've talked about it before in terms of decreasing your blood loss and decreasing your fluid deficit. But the other thing that it can do is because it decreases the blood flow to the cervix, you, know, you can actually get dilation of the cervical canal itself. Having small dilators on uh, standby, so they are, these are really lacrimal duct dilators, 
uh, which at first I was like, what are those? And it's like, yep, those are the ones that you use for the eyes. Uh, we can use them for uh, the cervix as well. So I'll start with really small dilators. Ideally do this under ultrasound guidance uh, to make sure that you're not perforating. The next um, kind of troubleshooting things I wanted to ask about, Andre, was uh, like the fluid stuff. And I feel like these are like, you know, favorite questions or something on the or boards. So like, what do you do if, you know, all of a sudden your fluid deficit gets really high? Or, you know, like, what if you reach your fluid deficit limit? Mm -hmm. So if you have a sudden increase in fluid deficit, the first thing that you have to consider is, did you perforate? Mm -hmm. So stop the procedure. Uh, if you have a sharp instrument in there, obviously pull back, um, leave the camera in place so that you can take a look at what's going on. Uh, but that's the first thing that you think about. Assess the situation and then uh, take a look. Is uh, for some reason your fluid management system suddenly disconnected? Uh, did uh, one of the buckets fall off or something like that? Uh, so take a look at everything that's uh, going on from that perspective. Um, and then let if some of the outflow was being spilled onto the floor or spilling out somewhere, uh, collect all of that, reassess, see what your fluid deficit is now. And if it's reasonable, you can continue. Uh, if you have a perforation, then obviously you have to address that. And then if you're reaching your fluid deficit limit, this is what I talked about before is planning for stage procedures. So knowing ahead of time that this could be a possibility. Uh, and so if you're starting to approach that limit, uh, finding a place, where can I safely stop with, before reaching that limit? And then saying, I'm done for today, and we're going to come back another time. All right. I think that does it for the time we have for today's episode. Um, Andre, thanks again for sharing your hysteroscopy knowledge with us. It was my absolute pleasure. All right. And Faye, why don't we try to summarize real quickly? Sure. So we first started talking about the reasons why we do hysteroscopy, and we discussed that it can be used both for diagnostic purposes, for things like AUB, infertility, and structural anomalies, as well as operative. So we are actually going in to try to do things like remove polyps or fibroids. We then moved to talk about the complications of hysteroscopy, primarily focusing on the two most common, though still fairly rare, perforation and fluid overload. We finally talked about some additional strategies to manage those particular complications. Again, with perforation, you're just wanting to figure out exactly where you're perforated and if you're worried about injury to extra uterine structures. And with fluid overload, you're stopping the procedure, assessing the stability of the patient, and considering things that you can do to adjust for fluid or electrolyte abnormalities. We then talked about hemorrhage, air embolism, infection, and vasovagal reactions as other rarer complications of hysteroscopy. We finished off the episode by doing some troubleshooting techniques. So first of all, how do we address things like cervical stenosis? And finally, we discussed you know, what to do if there's a sudden increase in fluid deficit and what to do when you reach your fluid deficit limit. Right. So thanks again to Andre Delinko. I'm sure we'll have you back sometime soon. Um, once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and go on to your favorite podcatcher, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us online on social media, on Twitter at Creogs Over Coffee One, on Instagram and Facebook at Creogs Over Coffee. Or if you love the show and want to support us, head over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash Creogs Over Coffee. Send us some love and we'll send you some swag. You can also find us on our website where you can find our, all of our show notes as well as the Rosh View question of the week. And if you engage with that, you may win a one-year subscription to Board Review 
questions from them, that's on our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com. If you have a question about this episode for Andre or us, you have a correction to a previous episode, or just want to say hi or give us a suggestion, email us, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com.